0: It's Wednesday, February the 2nd, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Bill Whalen, the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, but I'm not the only fellow who is a podcaster. If you don't believe me, go to the Hoover website and check for yourself. That is www.hoover.org. Click on the button where it says Publications, go to where it says Podcast, and look for yourself. We have all sorts of topics covered. You can subscribe to any or all. You can also sign up for Hoover's monthly Pod Blast, as we call it, which delivers the best of our podcasts to you each month. In fact, I made uh, the list. Two of mine were in there for January. I felt very flattered. Hoover Podcast, just one part of ideas defining a free society. My guest today on today's show is Tim Kane. Tim's a Hoover visiting fellow specializing in economics, immigration, and national security. He's also the author of a new book. It's titled The Immigrant Superpower, How Brains, Brawn, and Bravery Made America Stronger. Available for order online via Amazon and other merchants wherever good books are sold, I like to think. Tim, good to see you. We haven't done this in a while. Yeah, great to see you, Bill. How have you been? I've been very well. Uh, Question, my friend, four years ago at this time, you were in the process of running for office, correct?
1: Oh boy, that's right. Way to bring up bad memories, Bill.
0: No, not memories, good memories. So you went back to, you took a leave from Hoover, you went back to your uh, district in Ohio and you ran for Congress. Uh, I'm just curious, is that something you get out of your system when you do it or is it kind of like, does muscle memory kick in and you feel the itch to run again or...
1: You know, I had a talk with Condi Rice about this, uh, our, our boss, and I'm a big fan of hers. And I remember being told by um, one of her uh, chiefs of staff that, you know, there's one question that Secretary Rice doesn't like, and it's, will you please run for president? Yes. And, and, and I've, I mean, I've gotten to know her a little bit, but I had an opportunity and we were sitting down for a meal and, and uh, she was on my side. I was on her side. And I looked her in the eyes and I said, Condi, please run for, please run for president. Right. She, she said, Look, Tim, there are people like you who get energized by politics. Right. And there are others who are normal human beings like me who it's very draining. And I get that. No, it wasn't running for Congress was incredibly energizing. Um, there were literally thousands of people that either made contributions or came to work at the campaign mm-hmm. or were, you know, came to a parade. Right. Um So I loved it. But um, going home to Columbus, where I grew up, was also really heartwarming. But, you know, Hoover kind of pulled me back in. I mean, I love, I think we were the best think tank in the world. And I had an opportunity to write this book. Um, And rather than wait around for another, you know, uh, political position, I just wanted to do this. I wanted to help our country think about what's great about immigration and what policies can make it even greater.
0: Right, so if what is worth, Tim, uh, anytime I get uh, Director Rice on the chance for a podcast or video cast, uh, I always think, am I gonna ask a question that's gonna end my career here at Hoover? <laughs> and I had her uh, in front of donors one time and I just had to ask her the same question you did and I tried to preface it, preface it carefully <laughs> saying that, look, Condi, I've been giving speeches around California for 20 years and I get asked the same question each time will she please run for office, get her to run for office? And so I asked her, why don't you run for office? And she had a very clever answer, kind of a political answer. She said, I'm not sure that people want to know what I'm thinking necessarily. (laughs) You know, she's all times very careful and very measured in what she says. And maybe she was telling me that, you know, if she went out there and ran for office, kind of stripped down (laughs) that she, she might just kind of let loose.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, there are different ways to serve. That's for sure. And um I mean, I, my campaign manager, for example, doesn't want to be a congressman, but he was—he was just wonderful. There, there, are, there are different ways to serve. And having come out of the military, I know that's true. Not everybody's a fighter pilot. I was an intelligence officer, right? But um, you know, the things that we do as policy scholars are really important. And uh, you know, I'll tell you what's what's interesting. When you run for office, everybody thinks you've got an answer to everything. Like, right. well, what do you think about? you know, water subsidies out of the Colorado, you know, to be honest, don't know, got no idea at all. When it comes to immigration, I think there are a lot of congressmen that are just sort of following the knee jerk of their parties. And there's a lot of misperception about what the American people want. We get at some of that in this book, but the real theme here is, Let's not forget that without immigrants, we wouldn't be a great power in the first place.
0: Right. So let's talk immigration, Tim. And let's first talk about what's going on in Washington or more to the point what's not going on in Washington. Uh, I think kind of appropriate that we're doing this today on Groundhog Day. I believe uh, Punxsutawney Phil saw his shadow. I think we're in for six more Uh, weeks of winter. I don't know I always get that screwed up. I like the movie though. And I mentioned it's because like the Bill Murray movie, Immigration, um, the debate in Washington is kind of like Groundhog Day. It's just sort of every year seems to bring the same kind of same kind of problem. Here's the Biden record so far in immigration, Tim. Um, the administration so far has a boosted refugee admissions. B. It's preserved deportation relief for unauthorized immigrants to come to who come to America's children, and C. It's decided not to enforce the public charge rule that denies green cards to immigrants that could be used for Medicaid and other public benefits. My administration also lifted restrictions established during the early days of coronavirus that reduced the number of visas issued to immigrants. But here's the question, Tim, the big one that's sitting out there right now, the president also wants to create a pathway to citizenship. The Biden administration's plan would create, I believe, an eight year path for about 10 and a half million undocumented people living in this country. It would also, Tim, update existing family based immigration, and it would increase the number of diversity. Uh, visas. Here's what I'm curious about, Tim. We have seen the Biden administration go very large on a lot of left, left of center ideas that necessarily aren't popular out in in the great hinterland. They tried to go big on Build Back Better and got denied. They tried to go big on voting rights and got denied. The president's talked about immigration, Tim, but he hasn't pushed for it. You haven't seen Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi push for it either. Why are they reluctant to push on immigration when they are willing to push on other issues that are problematic for Democrats?
1: I'm really puzzled by it. And I think it's one reason is that Democrats are more divided on immigration than we may realize. Uh, there was an interview a few years ago when Bernie Sanders was a candidate for the presidency, and he instinctively was using some rhetoric about how immigrants steal jobs and got challenged by the interviewer, like, whoa, 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 that's that's not the, the new party line here. So there's a union left position that's part of the democratic DNA and Mm -hmm. it holds that people steal jobs from other people. Um, all evidence to the contrary, that's just the on the ground experience, uh, and, and certainly feeling. So, um, Bernie Sanders. And I, I think frankly, Joe Biden comes from that, you know, union arm union plank of the Democrats. And, uh, they're not instinctively welcoming, um, to immigrants, certainly not to guest workers, and right. that's that's proved to be the um, the real barb in in this I would call it meal, and it's why for twenty years we have had Groundhog Day. We've had comprehensive bill after comprehensive bill, and they seem to crash on this issue of uh, well, what what about guest workers? Because agriculture in America and a lot of the um, senators from big ag states they they recognize the need for uh foreign labor and and it can be recognized as temporary work visas but if those are blocked or denied or a wall is built and it's impossible well then they're going to have to go underground to uh illegal immigrant labor um and i think that's really that republicans are able to resolve that mm-hmm. president bush and uh Ted Kennedy had a handshake deal on a comprehensive bill, but they always fail. Um, And then you see what democratic president gets in the white house. This happened with Obama in his first two years, Mm -hmm. Nancy Pelosi was in charge of the house. I think they had a much bigger uh, control of the Senate, a 60 vote threshold. They passed that massive healthcare reform legislation with those 60 and nary a peep on immigration reform. You know, so here we are again, a decade later, and it's the exact same song, Um, I don't think they're going to be successful if they try to do a pathway to citizenship. Mm -hmm. That's become a lightning rod. Um, The American people frankly reject that choice between, well, do we deport all these illegal immigrants or do we give them a pathway? Bill, it's pretty simple. You give them legal status Mm -hmm. um, and you make it renewable as long as they're not committing crimes and they pass a background check. I think the American people are welcoming to anyone who's going to come here, work, contribute to the tax base, not low fund welfare and that's frankly what a lot of immigrant workers are doing illegal immigrant workers right. but those are that's actually a much smaller issue than our legal process and i go to pains in this book the immigrant superpower to talk about how successful our immigration system has been for legal immigration for gosh more than half a century This goes back to the 1965 reforms inspired by LBJ. And I guess to to, to wrap up the sentiment, Bill, that was a foreign policy decision. That was to make sure that we weren't a racist country with our immigration laws anymore in order to counter Soviet communism. And guess what? We won the Cold War. So let's not give up on this strategy. It's been very successful. Right.
0: This is a pushback against the ugly American image.
1: Right. Absolutely. I talk about the ugly American, uh, the novel which was written and mentions, uh, harsh, racist immigration policies. Senator John F. Kennedy was so impressed by that novel. He got a copy for the other 99 senators right. and he and LBJ pushed for reform and they got it.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: it's not the ugly American anymore. It's time for the media to update its narrative about, uh, America. America now is the most welcoming country, the most tolerant and diverse country. And mm-hmm. it's a success story that seems to have escaped, um, nobody's attention around the world, except for ours. We're, we're still stuck in this reflection on ourselves that's wrong.
0: One more question, Tim, that I want to get into the book, uh, which I enjoyed very much reading, by the way. Nice job. Um, and that's this. I look at immigration, Tim, over the course of the last almost 30 years now, and I think there are maybe two windows to have done reform. One was 1995. Uh, This was coming off of 1994 when Republicans regained Congress and also Proposition 187 passed here in California. So that was the first time when you really saw that the issue, you know, had political legs. You know, California, like 58 percent of voters supported Prop 187 at the time. Uh, The other time might have been Tim in 2005 when George Bush came off re-election because Bush would have had both Republican Congress to work with. And also, as you know, he was a rather interesting fellow when it came to immigration and that he was very, very, shall I say, open minded um, more so than a lot of other conservative Republicans on this topic. So those might have been the two windows, Tim, Uh, but they didn't happen for various political reasons. Here's my question to you. I'm going to get over my skis here, but let's look a little down the road here. Let's suppose Republicans get back Congress at uh, this November. And so going into November 2024, there's a Democratic president, Republican Congress. Let's suppose for the sake of argument, Tim, that Republicans hold on to Congress in that election and the presidency goes back to Republicans. Now in 2025, Tim, you would have a Republican president coming in with both chambers controlled by Republicans. In theory, the GOP could run immigration, but Given that scenario, what do you think Republicans would do?
1: Well, what they would do or what they should do, Bill. (laughs) Well,
0: I I guess there are two questions here. One is, do you think they would really touch the issue? Because here we have Biden touching it, but he wants to go big, but really not in a feasible way, as you suggest. Would a Republican president, you think, want to go big and do something dramatic? Or do you think he or she would have bigger fish to fry? Do you think the party wants to really delve into immigration reform?
1: So I think race and immigration... Uh, are so closely tied now in the conversation. And mm-hmm. I think that we're, we're about to see a real uh, shift in partisan attitudes on that. So there was a poll that came out recently about Hispanic voters. And I think it sort of shocked the political world that Hispanic voters for the first time were evenly split. Right, 50% would be more likely to vote for Republican, 50% for Democrat. And historically, they had leaned more towards Democrats. I think this grievance CRT, critical race theory, um, perspective um, from the Democratic Party is turning off a lot of voters who don't want to be defined by their race. They don't want their children's scholarships to be tied to the color of their skin. So you right. have Asian-Americans um hispanic americans and now with the whoopi Whoopi goldberg thing this harsh view of black white as if all white people are from the same tribe that's offensive to a lot of people who you know are not your typical wasp and catholics jews uh, italians frankly and this is covered in the book italians were lynched en masse um and not seen as white a hundred years ago so Right. You know, our our story, the American story is one of becoming more and more tolerant. And yet the CRT movement is trying to take us backwards. And I, I think we're going to see people will open their eyes and realize the party that believes in colorblind radical equality is, is more the Republican Party. I don't know what that does to Democrats, but I think it will shape the 2025 outlook. So here are the, here are the key moving pieces. The smallest of them is illegal immigration, mm-hmm. Right. In fact, net migration to to Mexico is negative now. There are more Mexicans leaving um, who are truly Mexican citizens than coming. We see an influx of Central Americans. Um, I think a lot of that is because of a very confused policy under Obama that would welcome children or families with children, but not single males. Well, then we, we, we see some things that look sort of exploitative with bringing children through a very dangerous trek across the border and then saying, I I want uh, asylum. They're not really refugees in the classical sense. They're more economic migrants. I think that one will get maybe sorted out before 2025 because it really is a border crisis. So the question is, what do we do about legal? Which is a much bigger issue. I have a feeling that there will be a reinforcement of family-based immigration policy. Most of immigrants to America come through family connections. We're unique in the world but the reason that I think we're going to stick with it is we have a great assimilation system where legal immigrants take an oath to America. They learn about our history, and it turns out they're more patriotic. right? They express more pro-constitutional attitudes. They understand the constitution better. I have a feeling that the next Republican candidate will embrace that and reinforce it. I do think um, the, the open question is, what do we do about refugees from, say, Venezuela or Uyghurs from China? And to me, a smart hawk. And if the next Republican administration is hawkish, they'll use this as diplomatic leverage over um, China and welcome more refugees and point out the Uyghurs, the Hong Kongers. And frankly, anyone from the mainland, they're all going to be recognized as refugees and they should be. It's becoming a repressive state uh, that Beijing's running.
0: Yeah, I did a, a Hoover Book Club recording uh, recently with Marcos Kunalakos, our colleague here at Hoover, Tim, and he has a book out, um, and the subject to it is freedom. He took a series of columns he's written over the years and tied them under freedom in various ways, and what we talked about was um, a competition between America and China, really, for you know economics, military standing, but also hearts and minds, and it occurred to me during that conversation, Tim, that if America's part of what goes on right now is China will tell other nations, you can you can invest in us and bet on us, you can bet on the United States of America but look at the United States of America. And it gets back to the ugly American trope. Um, mm-hmm. Look at their elections, look at the racism, look how they fight among themselves. Do you really want to be you know, in cahoots with these people or not? And the thought was, Tim, why not have the United States become a lot more ambitious when it comes to visas to inviting people in here? Because you know, this, because you probably know people have experienced this. Once you come to America, you see that it's quite contrary to what you might think it is when you live abroad. And best of all, if you come to this country and you know, drink from the nectar of democracy and freedom and go, back to your country, you might be more interested in promoting democracy and freedom back where you live. I'm going to ask you a question, Bill, Mm -hmm. because I mentioned illegal
1: immigration is the smallest issue. Mm -hmm. Legal immigration, we're talking about north of 1 million legal migrants arrive in the U.S. every year are welcomed and begin that that, um, process of taking an oath and studying um, the Constitution. But the next and the much bigger uh, realm is visitors. Right. These are students, tourists, student, businessmen. Student,
0: student visas, right?
1: Yeah. Before COVID, take a guess at how many uh, visitor visas were issued per year by the United States back in 2019.
0: Oh, uh, you're going to make me look stupid here. I'll say, <laughs> say two million.
1: That is that is not going to make you look stupid, but you're way off by okay. two orders of magnitude. 181 million visitors to the United States. Oh, wait
0: a second. 181 million?
1: Yes. It's huge. And and these are people that are doing business deals. These are students at our universities, but there are a lot of people going to Disneyland,
0: right? So people, so people, people coming and going, and sometimes for brief periods like to do a week in California. Or Absolutely. And right.
1: some of those are repeats. So it doesn't mean 181 million souls at the
0: same time, right? It,
1: it, but it does mean, you know, this might be. Uh, There might be an individual that comes on 10 business trips a year. But the fact is, we have a smooth functioning tourist uh, visitor system. Mm -hmm. And um, these are people, students that go to our high schools, exchange students, go Mm -hmm. to our colleges, which is a billion dollar industry, multi-billion dollar industry. And um, that got shut down by the pandemic. I think very, very damaging, but it also shuts down to Marcos's point you know, that idea of advertising America and our values. I think we should should get back to that system and enhance it. And frankly, we might look at, a smart president might look at forming alliance agreements with countries like Japan and Britain and saying, no, there's no limit. If you wanna come here and work, um, we're not gonna make you leave three months later or six months later. You can, as long as you're registered and you're law abiding, um, that'd be something that, that would be a real incentive to get allies uh, on our side in the in the geopolitical chessboard,
0: All right. Well, I think a smart president should read your book. And speaking of the book, it appears that you have touched a nerve because you got into trouble. You're put a into little, time, you're put into timeout. No, I kind of was. I was tweeting about the book, uh-huh. and I
1: ran across the uh, the tweet algorithm uh, that said I was not allowed to promote this book because it was a book dedicated to a cause which i what what yeah so i guess only books that have you know no substance to them are allowed to be promoted so in theory Um,
0: so i guess you can't promote the bible because it's based on christianity correct (laughs) all right so so twitter says you're promoting a cause and so twitter does what they they boot you off of twitter what happened so the tweet
1: was allowed to stand but i couldn't put you know fifty dollars behind it to promote it there were other tweets they approved but the one that i was you know, sort of my main tweet where I, summer, gosh, I could read it, but I don't even have it in front of me, Bill. Right. Um, but I, I think one of my lines was, you know, the, the immigrant superpower for a republic, not a homeland, for incremental reform, uh, not comprehensive, um, for winning the 22nd century. So something about that. Oh, I think I said for more legal immigration and zero illegal immigration. So I, I took, you know, a, a, an absolutist approach. But I was wondering, what if, what if there was a book that said, you know, for zero, um, I don't know, crime? Well, whoa, that's too absolutist. We want some balance here. There should be a little bit of crime. Should, no. So that, that tweet got rejected for promotion. And uh, I don't think there's even an appeal. But um, it just made me laugh. It led to a, a newsletter, I think, that I put out called Why America. Um, I try to do that semi-weekly. And right. so I wrote about it yesterday in my newsletter.
0: Right. But don't you think that's kind of part of the problem with the immigration debate in general? Just you, you know, you stuck your head out of the trench and started talking about immigration. Someone took a shot at you. And so perhaps there are people in Washington who want to do immigration, but they know this is what happens once you start proposing ideas. You're quickly you're quickly put into corners. You're either lax on border security or you're the opposite. You're a xenophobe.
1: Yeah, the primaries, I think, can be brutal on this. And you get candidates on the left and right afraid to cross the party line. And it blurs everything together. Are you for more immigration or less? And I'm trying to say, well, both. More legal, a lot more legal. Refugees uh, tend to be the best of Americans, commit the fewest crimes, love to volunteer for the U.S. military, extremely patriotic. We should actually want more real refugees because... They, they come here, they believe in the American dream, even when so many Americans have cast doubt on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, illegal immigration, these are folks who don't have to assimilate, don't take an oath, um, create a culture of lawlessness. There are crime and gang problems right here in Atherton. I don't know if you heard about this, Bill, but Chile- there have
0: been Chilean gangs,
1: Chilean gangs. So yeah, you, politicians that can't do nuance at that level. Uh, Yeah, I think we've got a
0: problem. Right. By the way, what we're, we're talking to, for those who are not familiar with California, Northern California in particular, uh, Atherton, California, which is not too far from where Tim and I are doing this podcast is, I think the, Tim, I think it's the most expensive zip code in America, 94027. Uh, I, I, can't afford, average, I can't afford to buy a hamburger there. Yeah, so. You and me both. I think the average home price there, home sale price is about $7.5 million. And what we're talking about is they have had a crime wave. This is a town that's notoriously crime-free. If you read the local papers, Tim, and you read the crime blotter section, it's always just a bunch of. People living behind walls complaining about you know about garbage trucks and leaf blowers and things like that. But this is actual organized crime, Chilean gangs coming in and breaking into expensive homes. I think one home, Tim, uh, they stole eight hundred thousand dollars worth of jewelry. So uh, probably a little bit more jewelry than you have in your house. I think <laughs> maybe close. <laughs> they, they could they could take my whole
1: house, put it in the big pickup truck. It probably wouldn't be worth that much. But yeah.
0: Right. But but there it is. Um, explain the title to me. The uh, the immigrant superpower. How'd you come up with that?
1: You know the last book I wrote I I wrote with Glenn Hubbard and we called it Balance hmm. the Economics of Great Powers and we were our, our, I think we were too cute with it. We were really trying to talk about fiscal balance and and calling for a balanced budget amendment but I wish I had just called it the Economics of Great Powers. You know just call it is what it is. And this book I decided to I actually racked my brain trying to come up with the most obvious, you know, title I could. Right. And I wanted to have Immigrant in it. I didn't want to be cute and call it the journey or the the peregrine. I, I, like, I like poetic things, but I really wanted to emphasize, unlike the other 20 or 30 books that are out there on bookshelves, this isn't an economic issue. It's fundamentally a power issue, a foreign policy, national security issue. So the immigrant superpower over time just, just rose to the top.
0: So take the reader inside the book, Tim. They read the book. What do you want them to take away from it?
1: Well, I ended up writing, I I love, I actually really like this. I probably tell more stories here. I tell the story about the Mayflower. Um, So there's a lot of U.S. history involved. The Mayflower, Mm -hmm. I always thought, was the pilgrims coming over for religious freedom. And that's why they wrote the Mayflower Compact. Not true. Um, Mayflower Compact was demanded by the servants to the pilgrims, um, what they were called the strangers who said, look, we were supposed to go to Virginia where it's warm. Here we are in you know, Massachusetts. It's freezing cold. Um, as soon as they got off the boat, they were threatening to just leave, become fur trappers or something. They said, we'll only stay if we're treated equally and given voice. So the founding of America, that founding document before the declaration, was really about radical equality. And I, I just love that story. So I also have a section on, immig- or on presidents, a whole chapter about presidential greatness and who was truly great on um immigration but the heart of it bill if if i could have people leave this book remembering anything it would be chapter 10 where i recount the band of brothers and perconti Luz. people familiar with the series will remember these names garnier Soboleski. Right. They're not first generation immigrants, but every one of them is a second generation immigrants. Often their parents didn't speak English. Mm-hmm. So the story of the all American boys that fought in World War ii and these are real people. Yes. Right. In easy company, were second generation immigrants. We don't win that war without the patriotism, the grit, the belief in what they were fighting for uh, and their immigrant parents. Um and I, I go back through World War I and the Civil War, Abe Lincoln being the very first president. It's not like he had his hands full with other issues, right? He was mm-hmm. the first president to propose and see passed legislation to encourage immigration, not just passively accepting it. So it's a walk through history, but that section on the American military and the fact that half of the medals of honor ever awarded went to either a first or second generation immigrant. It Mm -hmm. it surprised me, and I'm a fan of immigration. So I think there's a lot of research, and I try to put it in a narrative form, but you're not going to get a better story than the Band of Brothers.
0: Right. One thing you addressed in the book, Tim, is the trope about the racist xenophobic American right. Would you like to explain that?
1: Yeah, this goes back to that ugly American idea. Um, Pew did a survey a few years ago. They asked the exact same question in 15 different countries. Mm-hmm. How, how welcoming are you to ethnic and cultural diversity? And do you think it makes your country better or worse? Mm-hmm. The, the, the respondents who said better was a one-to-one ratio in Germany.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In America, it was eight to one. So, you know, you compare all these European countries are much less welcoming and tolerant than the United States. And and if you ask foreigners, which country would you like to immigrate to? I think you can take the next four combined. They don't add up to as many uh, foreigners that wanna come to the United States. So you see a welcoming country, a world that recognizes that. And then somehow our media is caught up in, you know, we've got the nice party in in the racist party and it's really just not true. Um, our research shows that even Republicans, they don't want to see illegals deported. Mm -hmm. A a majority of Republicans are opposed to deportation as a solution, but they also don't want to have amnesty. So I think the mainstream media is really more guilty of following this trope. And um, I did actually dig in. So I'm going to get myself canceled with this book, Bill. And it's (laughs) chapter 14 where I go after critical race theory. I'm like, look, This is a theory that says we're a majority white country. What people don't realize is you know who's categorized as white by law? Arabs, Persians, people from Turkey, Libya. You've got Afghan refugees, Bill, who are going to be told they've got white privilege because if you're Afghani, you're white. It gets you this ridiculous. The University of California said anybody from Northern California, sorry, anybody from uh, north of the Sahara, if you're not sub Saharan, you're not really. African. You can't be called African-American. So you've got kids from Somalia who are coded as white. I mean, you know, the whole the whole idea of whiteness is an illusion. And, you know, I'm from an Irish Catholic family. So we never really felt like we're, we're in the grand white tribe and got along with the British Protestants. Right. Um, here in America, we, we get along, but let's not pretend there's just one white race. And this is the fault line that whoopi goldberg stepped in and it's deeply offensive and i i think it's time to just get rid of the racist language that nazis were comfortable uh that the confederacy was comfortable we've got to recognize there is no white race and and so that's that's an issue i take head on and i know immigrants aren't coming here to get in racial boxes they're coming here for equality
0: Right, two thoughts. First of all, um, I remember years ago, Tim, Georgetown University had a problem. I think it was sued uh, by a a young man who applied for admission. And on his uh, admissions, he checked African because he was from South Africa. And Georgetown said, well, you're not really African. Even though you're from South Africa. And so we're in that kind of Orwellian definition of you know, what constitutes you know, one's, one's citizenship representation. But uh, you know, with Whoopi, it's you know, we were talking about this before we started recording. Uh, either she's just ignorant of history and doesn't really understand the Nazis and Hitler and what was going on with the Holocaust exactly, uh, or she just has a very misguided view on race, which I'm afraid is what the case is. And she sees this pun intended in black and white terms. In other words, race is just strictly about skin color. And if you have a different skin color, different race, she doesn't understand that you can actually have different, you know, striations of race within appearance, you know, Japanese, Korean, Chinese, and so forth. Or in Hitler's case, he was looking at different, you know, members people living in Europe and deciding that Aryans were superior to Jews and and uh, Serbs and so forth. So um, that's bothersome moving forward, though, because you wonder how many people out there think like Whoopi Goldberg, who just don't have a microphone like she does.
1: Well, I, and the thing is, I actually I like Whoopi Goldberg, and I believe her that she didn't mean any offense. But we've all been lulled into this. it's okay to call somebody white right and that it's okay to call somebody just to categorize somebody by their skin color we wouldn't say there's an asian race you know there there were horrible ethnic wars um between japan china and korea and vietnam so it's just time to recognize that it's such a multifaceted issue we do a disservice in this country to individuals we do a disservice to groups to be forcing people to be coded by these constructs, which are racialist in nature. And and I I would say probably get away from the whole business of being counting by race at all. Um, But at the minimum, um, let's talk about it with some more
0: sensitivity. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, for example, you think college admissions, should there be a box to check race?
1: No, I think it's unconstitutional, Bill. Actually, I think it's time for the Supreme Court to correct the errors they've made in the past. Uh, and allow any sort of, not only any quotas, but any weighting to allow race as a factor. Right. They need to recognize that if we're going to solve poverty, it's not going to be done down racial corridors. That's just divisive. It's going to be done by recognizing, give scholarships to kids based on their parents' incomes for the last 10 years, or you know, the poverty of the, the high school they've gone to, something like that. But you know, th- this shortcut of using race, um, there are too many poor kids of every race and too many wealthy kids of every race that you end up getting a really um, worsened, I think you you rub raw the nerves in, in the racial tension by these, what are called affirmative action programs. And we need to get back to race neutral. So I think the Supreme Court will actually make these sort of things unconstitutional
0: and soon. Right, these are the two cases that this fall. I think one involves Harvard and uh, admissions with regard to Asians. I think the other one Tim is, uh, I think it involves University of North Carolina and it's admissions as well. I'm, I'm more familiar with the Harvard case, right? They've had
1: opportunities to do this in the past. And there was a university of Michigan case a few years ago and they, and they whiffed on it and they said, well, hopefully we won't need these sort of things in 25 years. But John Roberts said something promising. It's one of the few court cases that I can quote where he said, you know, the, the way to end um, categorizing people by race is to stop categorizing people by race. So yeah, it's, it's, it's overdue. It, we would probably have less racial tension if we hadn't been allowing um, these sorts of racial programs uh, for the last 20 years.
0: Yeah. Uh, speaking of another divisive issue, and I think you wrote about this on your Substack platform, Tim, uh, the idea of non-citizen voting in New York City. Um, for those not familiar, New York City passed a law enabling non-citizens to cast votes for mayor, city council, and other locally elected persons starting in 2023. I think Tim, a Republican st- state lawmaker, wants to uh, do a state constitutional amendment banning this now. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you wrote you think this is a terrible idea—not the amendment, but the idea of non-citizen voting. I did. I did. Well,
1: I'm a I'm a big believer in democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, some of my friends get cynical about it, and look what all what's going wrong. And that's fine. You know, we've got a bureaucratic society and there can be problems with too much democracy. Like, God forbid they ever allow, you know, the people to vote on interest rates Mm -hmm. right? because they're never going to go higher. We would live in a state of perpetual hyperinflation. That's why we have a Supreme Court. That's why we have two houses. So we get away from mobocracy. Right. You've got to find balance. And the founders tried to get us there. But. One of the core tenets of self-government is literally self-government. Other people aren't allowed to move in and cast votes if they're not citizens. And Victor Davis Hansen wrote a great book on citizenship recently, um, which I think echoes, or at least I'm echoing maybe some of the things he's saying is there is value in citizenship. Allowing illegal immigration and allowing non-citizens to vote violates What are supposed to be part of the bargain of citizenship is you contribute, you work hard, you pay your taxes, but you also get to control things. Mm -hmm. Um, They've written this law so badly in New York that it's not unimaginable for a foreign power to say, you know what, we'd like to have a hand in who the mayor of New York is or the New York legislature. So we'll have people move over or just visit as tourists for 30 days because that's the residency requirement. And like I said, how many people visit America every year? 181 million. I mean, and for those who don't know this by, uh, by heart, our country only has 330 million citizens, right? So, you know, on any given day, there could probably be 10, 20% of our, of, of the people here or more are foreign born and not U.S. citizens. They, they don't have an oath to our constitution. Are we going to let them vote in our elections? I mean, the question is, what is democracy? And I think it's pretty clear. It should be citizens only.
0: So my turn to put you on the spot, Tim. Uh, Fox News did a poll on whether or not there should be an amendment blocking non-citizens from voting in New York City. How many percent of the respondents do you think, Tim, support the change, i.e., <laughs> I. they're opposed to the idea of non-citizen voting?
1: How many people are opposed to non-citizen voting? I Give would a guess 90%.
0: Seventy seven percent, actually. But okay. keep in mind, that was 50 percent of Democrats, 90 percent of Republicans. But here's the here's the killer. Seventy percent of independents. That's what takes right. you. Seventy seven percent. So it's a politically it's a terrible issue for Democrats. That's probably one reason, Tim, why you see both uh, AOC and Chuck Schumer. I don't think they've talked to Peep about this and this is in their backyard.
1: Yeah, no, it's and I'm torn on that because I might be one of the um, I might be one of the minority that would be opposed to this amendment. And mm-hmm. here's why, I believe in this amendment called the Tenth, yes. <laughs> which is powers not explicitly granted to the federal government are reserved to the states and the people. Right. And we've we've all but ignored that one. You know, if California wants to be silly about their voting for their state legislature and their city. I can scold them, but I'm not a New Yorker. I'm I'm from Ohio, and uh, I don't want to pay off their their profligate debt. I don't want to deal with their horrible, you know permissive crime uh, policies. By the same token, I I don't want them to tell me what's voting and what's not voting. This kind of gets back to the um, Democrats' initiative on uh, the legitimacy of elections that aren't run by the federal government. And what did Joe Biden just called into question the upcoming elections that they may be illegitimate unless he can change for the first time ever who gets to control state electoral uh, processes um, no, I'm, I'm count me in column is in defense of uh, federalism bill.
0: Okay. This does tie into the, what we started the podcast with, and that's the idea of citizenship. And I look at it, Tim, and I put it in this, uh, light, uh, you think of citizenship and you think of being a citizen, you're in effect, a member of a club. And if you're a member of a club, that club has privileges. And so one way to push back against non-citizens voting is saying, wait a second, as a citizen, I have the privilege of voting. You don't give non-club members the same privilege. But Absolutely. then we go down, but then now it's time we start going the slippery slope of okay, if you're in this country and you're not a citizen, what are you entitled to? What can you tap into? And I think this now gets into your question about giving people legal legalized status.
1: Right. Um one of the things that citizens are called on to do in time of war is to serve in the military. So we're gonna require people to be eligible to the draft if they're not citizens. So your point is, yeah, there are there are rights, but there are, there are also obligations that come along with, with citizenship. Um, I, I think what's interesting, Bill, when you analyze the Constitution, and I, I used to ask uh, students this, what did, do you think is the most important right? Or how would you rank order them? Is it the right to free speech? Is it the right to vote? And I've got to say, I, over time, I've come to believe that the right to migrate from one state to another is, is one of the intangible but probably most important rights we have in a federal society. So if California adopts a bunch of silly rules that lead to a crime wave, well, people can move. If California wants to adopt a 20% tax rate on top of what people pay in federal tax rates, Californians can move. And you know what? They are moving. They're moving to places like Nevada and Texas and Oregon, although that one doesn't make sense. Um, And uh, Florida, Tennessee, Ohio. Um, so I think the fundamental right we have is migration. It's mm-hmm. powerful internationally, but it's also powerful domestically. And that's and one of the reasons that we're a superpower. The states check each other from uh, getting too
0: crazy with bad laws. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Lincoln uh, delving into immigration. Ronald Reagan signed Simpson mazzoli I believe. Would Reagan go up on your rush war with Lincoln of presidents and immigration?
1: Oh, absolutely. Reagan's farewell address, he was telling people that he had been looking out the window um, in the White House on the second floor with Mm -hmm. a view across the river, a a view that Lincoln had and wondering what other presidents had said. He goes, I want to try reflecting on what's the story I want to share um, here at my last address to you, the American people. And he told a story about uh, immigration and refugees who were called the boat people at the time in the Coming, trying to flee Vietnam and Cambodia um, for freedom, leaving really oppressive communism. And the U.S. Navy was charged with helping rescue those boat people. And many of them were brought here as refugees to become U.S. citizens. That was Reagan's policy. I think it's forgotten how great he was in terms of being a pro-immigration president. And George Bush was even better. George Bush, senior. 41. Yeah. Yeah was the president that I, I say uh, did the Louisiana purchase of immigration policy. He essentially doubled legal immigrant visas, green cards. The and that's visas. coded yeah. that's coded into law. So Reagan and Bush were, in my book, um, literally high watermark for great presidents on immigration.
0: That's three. Is There's one spot on Rushmore left. Is there another president <laughs> who leaps out?
1: Well, uh, Truman's fantastic. Um, and LBJ... As much as I don't like a lot of his other policies, LBJ may be the single greatest uh, president in terms of impact on immigration policy. So if I can have five spots, those are the five.
0: With well, Johnson, it would have been personal because Johnson at all times talked about seeing firsthand the poor Texas existence and seeing newcomers to America struggling. So, you know, unlike, you know, Bush 41, certainly Reagan to a lesser extent, even Lincoln, he had the immigrant example right in front of him. That's right. Yeah, as I say. All right, so a final final thought for you, Tim. Uh, Let's say it's 2025, and let's play out the scenario I talked earlier. A new president coming in, and he or she has a Congress that can play ball in immigration with him or her. You get 10, 20 good minutes in the Oval Office with this president. What do you suggest in terms of how to move forward? Well. uh Thanks.
1: That's really, that's a fun. um, How do you, how do
0: you, how do you, I want to know some sensible ideas of how to break the logjam because we can sit here and say, you should do X, Y, and Z. And I could say, well, why don't you propose changing Article 2, Section 1, and let's let, you know, newcomers to the country run for president if they want to. Right. And you could also push back and say, wait a second, what about birthright citizenship? Maybe we should end that now and so forth. Those are hot potatoes, lightning rods, if you will. So give me, Tim, some sensible ideas that a a president could put forward that you think might actually survive.
1: I would start with saying um, this is a national security issue and to secure American greatness and to win this century against our rivals, this is one of the um, arrows in the quiver that is deeply unappreciated. JFK, LBJ, even Reagan understood this With such a sharp contrast with Soviet domination of the world. And Mm -hmm. here we were a free country welcoming foreigners from every corner. um, That's really a a great tool to use uh, in the future. And so how do we make America stronger and how do we use this diplomatically? Um, One is let's get more scientists and engineers here. Just like Truman realized we needed more German rocket scientists to win uh, the cold war. Well, we need more AI scientists. Um, People worry a lot about Chinese stealing intellectual property. Uh, China's worried about America uh, stealing their brainpower because Mm. so many um, brilliant Chinese born citizens want to become American citizens. For goodness sakes, they're getting their engineering degrees and their computer science degrees at our universities. Well, let's keep them. Um, So those, those are some no brainers. I think the theme though I would give is the way to, get the goal of the the couple touchdowns here where in the past there's been failure is break up comprehensive and go for incremental progress. All or nothing approach, as Marco Rubio said, is 20 Mm -hmm. years of nothing. Um, And the second is, I think we need to move away from quotas and caps and more towards standards. I'd like to maybe tighten down illegal immigration and get it to zero. But when we're talking about legal immigration, if you're law abiding, You've got a totally clean record. You're productive. You're adding to the economy. Why would we want to limit the number of, say, electrical engineers with no criminal background that want to be Americans? There should not be a cap on that.
0: Right. Uh, when you mentioned national security, I thought you're going to evoke the southern border.
1: Well, which, I don't which, think we I... which
0: we haven't talked about here, but if you're going to do immigration, if a president's going to want to pull something off of the Congress, it's going to be part of the conversation. So, so, uh, uh,
1: what I think is a a new idea. Nobody's thinking about it this way. Is the State Department should designate refugee countries, and I, you know, clearly Syria is a refugee situation. Venezuela, uh, there are people fleeing communism. China with the Uyghur, um, you know, camps and the repression of Hong Kong. Those countries should be declared refugee countries, and that means people from those countries recognized as. Refugees fleeing political persecution—that's different than poor countries, w- which are basically sending economic migrants. Th- those are not refugees, and they—they're going. I think being the Democrats being too open and loose and just playing on everyone's sympathies is—is is actually creating a lot of resentment and confusion and leading to chaos at the border. We need a president who will say no.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. What about economic development in Central America? Uh,
1: keep keep doing what we're doing. In fact, it's been successful. right? Mm -hmm. Um, GDP per capita. Bill, if you didn't see this, there's a defining ideas essay that I published a few months ago. said, let's talk about root causes
0: Mm -hmm.
1: because everything that Kamala Harris is saying is a root cause for this border crisis. There's greater crime. Not true. Crime peaked back in 2012 in all of these Central American countries. It's been cut in half since. GDP per capita? No, incomes are up in every one of these countries. Um, the root cause for the refugee crisis is a more permissive border and more permissive laws in the United States. It's um,
0: literally the case of seeing the bat signal going up, right?
1: Yeah. No, yeah. we've we've done a good job engaging with Central America. I think we can do better. I think we need to pick some really committed allies to help their economies boom, and that probably starts with Mexico. And Mexico mm-hmm. doesn't like th- these, you know, migrant trains coming through their country. So but I think the birth rates have fallen so precipitously across Latin America mm-hmm. that the notion of these giant waves of people, that's probably going to become old news. You know, I think within a decade could be wrong, but um, I, th- I think we're heading toward a more a much richer continent where we're going to be wondering, wow, where did our farm labor go? Because that's going to be the next
0: crisis. All right. So if we look at immigration and we look at issues such as technology, such as engineering skills and so forth, uh, doesn't that tilt Emma Lazarus on her head? Because this is not the huddled masses who came into New York Harbor.
1: Well, it's just a different world. I mean, George Washington said he dreamed of America becoming an asylum to the world. Right. And the, the principle is let's recognize this is a going to be a society not just for the English, not just for the English speaking. Mm-hmm. Washington saw the potential um, that we've actually fulfilled and become. We should be proud of it and we should just continue forward with it.
0: Yeah. Thank you for not saying it George Washington. We're live today. I hate these questions when people say, what would the founding fathers think of X, Y, or Z? And before you know what we're saying, what would Thomas Jefferson think about riding around in a Tesla? I well, have no earthly idea what's going on. So. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So true. Okay. So the book, so it looks like you've got a healthy few weeks of promotion for it coming up. I hope so. We've got
1: some good op-eds in the works. I know real clear politics book section is going to run a pretty neat piece. Um, there's a big section that I turned into an essay called The Chosen Immigrants about the Jewish diaspora going back centuries. And uh, yeah, it'll be fun. Keep an eye out, Bill. I'll, I'll give you a heads up when, when some new pieces come up.
0: Well, I got bad news for you. You and I are doing a Hoover book club on this very soon. So consider yourself warned.
1: Okay, I'll see you again soon, Bill. Thanks for having
0: me. Tim, I enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us. And if you wouldn't mind, spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover I-N-S-T. Tim Kane is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Timmer Kane. That is spelled T-I-M-M-E-R-K-A-N-E at Timmer Kane. And he's also on Substack. The address there is Y America. That's W H Y America dot substack.com whyamerica.substack.com. And the book, once again, The Immigrant Superpower, How Brains, Brawn, and Bravery Made America Stronger. For the Hoover Institution, uh, this is Bill Whelan. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics, talking Ronald Reagan, who has a birthday in a couple of days. Till then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts, or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.